Good morning. I'm reasonably certain this wasn't the look I thought I'd be achieving this morning. In 1967, oh yeah, you get a picture, that's what we need. In 1967, now there's no deniability, Paul Newman introduced the world to an indomitable individual whom his fellow prisoners dubbed Cool Hand Luke. Luke's tenacity in the face of adversity earned the prisoner's respect and the guard's attention. And the film's iconic line comes when the prison captain strikes Luke and after he falls down, he turns to the other guys working the line and the captain says, what we've got here is a failure to communicate. And uh, so what does Paul Newman's piercing blue eyes and the man with no eyes have to do with the book of Ezra. Well, in Ezra 7, God introduces us to the title or figure of this eponymous book. That is, this is when we meet Ezra is in chapter 7. And God is going to use Ezra to rectify a failure to communicate. There's going to be a long period between the close of chapter 6 and the the start of chapter 7, and God is going to use Ezra to to re-speak to His people who've grown complacent over that 80-year gap. So if you turn with me to Ezra 7, it's on page 498, on page 498 of the Blue Pew Bibles, and let's ask the Lord to bless our time together today. Lord Jesus, we come to You this morning asking that You would speak to us from the book of Ezra, that from this somewhat misunderstood and often overlooked book, that we would draw a series of of unshakable principles from Scripture, that you would allow at least one of these main points to pointedly point us towards gospel change, kingdom involvement, sacrificial service, that your glory might be extended and your kingdom might be advanced. We pray, Lord Jesus, asking that You would roar through Your Word today. Your Scriptures tell us that Your sheep will hear Your voice. May we hear You in Ezra 7 and 8 this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I just want to read to you from Ezra chapter 7. Now after this, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, the son of Sariah, the son of Azariah, the son of Hilkiah, the son of Shalom, the son of Zadok, the son of Atub, the son of Amariah, the son of Azariah, the son of Marioth, the son of Zariah, and on and on, verse 6. And then Ezra went up from Babylon. That Ezra, of all that lineage, verse 6, this Ezra went up from Babylon. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses and the Lord. That's an important verse. Uh, The God of Israel had given and the king had granted him all that he asked for the hand of the Lord God was upon him. That's another important verse. We're going to hear that a bunch in this chapter. The hand of the Lord God was upon this man, Ezra, skilled in the law. Verse 7, And there went up also to Jerusalem in the seventh year of Artaxerxes the king some of the people of Israel and some of the priests and Levites and the singers and gatekeepers and the temple servants. And Ezra came to Jerusalem on the fifth month, which was on the seventh year of the king. And on the first day of the fifth month, he began to go up from Babylon. And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem. For the good hand of his God was upon him. Now, why was the good hand of God on Ezra? Well, here it is, verse 10. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord, to do it, and to teach 
His statutes and rules in Israel. Another key verse in our text. This is a copy of the letter that King Artaxerxes gave to Ezra the priest, the scribe, a man learned in the matters of the commandments of the Lord and His statutes for Israel. Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of God of heaven. Peace. And now I make a decree that any one of the people living in Israel or their priests or Levites in my kingdom who freely offers to go to Jerusalem may go with you. So this is going to be the second return of Israelites from Babylonian captivity. For you are sent by the king and his seven counselors to make inquiries about Judah and Jerusalem according to the law of your God which is in your hand. And also to carry the silver and gold that the king and his counselors have freely offered. So here you have a pagan king giving offerings to God in large numbers with all the silver and gold that you shall find in the whole province of Babylon along with the free will offerings of the people and the priests vowed willingly for the house of their God that is in Jerusalem. That is, there was a collection among the Jews still in exile and they were sending money to help the returnees. With this money, then, you shall buy with all diligence bulls and rams and lambs with their grain offerings and their drink offerings and you shall offer them on the altar of the house of your God that's in Jerusalem. Whatever seems good to you and your brothers to do with the rest of the silver and gold, you may do according to the will of your God. Isn't that amazing? This pagan king sending all this treasure? Wow. Okay, so go on. Um, the vessels uh, that have been given you for the service of the household of God, you shall deliver before the God of Jerusalem. And whatever else is required of the house of your God, which it falls to you to provide, you may provide it out of the king's treasury. Again, amazing. And I, Artaxerxes the king, make a decree to all the treasurers in the province beyond the river that whatever Ezra the priest, the scribe, the law of God under heaven requires of you, let it be done with all diligence up to 100 talents of silver, 100 cores of wheat, 100 baths of wine, 100 baths of oil, and salt without prescribing how much at all. That is limitless according to the need. Whatever is decreed by the God of heaven, let it be done in full for the house of God of heaven, lest His wrath be against the realm of the king and his sons. And we also notify you that it shall not be lawful to impose any tribute, custom, or toll on any one of the priests or the Levites, the singers, the doorkeepers, the temple servants, or the other servants of the house of God. He sends treasure and he exempts from tax the servants of God. Verse 25, And you, Israel, Ezra, according to the wisdom of your God that is in your hand, I want you to appoint magistrates and judges who may judge all the people in the province beyond the river, all such as know the laws of your God. So put judges over your people that are scattered around in my kingdom. And those who do not know them, you shall teach. Here's a pagan king saying, I want you to go out and I want you to teach your people the word of God. Amazing. Whoever will not obey the law of your God and the law of the king, let judgment be strictly executed on him, whether for death or for banishment or for confiscation of his goods and imprisonment. Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king to beautify the house of the Lord in Jerusalem, and who extended to me his steadfast love before the king and his counselors. And before all the king's mighty officers, I took courage, for the hand of the Lord my God was on me. And I gathered the leading men from Israel to go up for me. So here's the charge. Now we have the journey and we have the result. Chapter 8. And these are the heads of the father's houses. And this went with the genealogy of those that went up with me from Babylon. And he begins to list all those people that started coming with him. And, and he goes all the way down, all the way down, all the way down until verse 15. So he's saying, here's the people that agreed to come when the king gave the opportunity. Now in verse 15. I gathered them to the river that runs to Ahava. And there we camped for three days. And as I reviewed the people and the priests, I found that none of the sons of Levi had come. 
And I sent for Eleazar and Ariel and Shemelah and Anathan and Jerob and others. Verse 17. And I sent them to Edo. And I sent them to the leading man of that place, telling them what to say to Edo and his brothers and the temple servants at the place uh, Kasifa, namely to send us ministers to the house of God. So people were willing to return, but no priests were willing to return. Not a single priest was willing to return. Not one. And they needed that. They needed reinforcements because the whole point was to make the temple and its ministry stronger. And by the good hand of our God on us, they brought us a man of discretion. The sons of Mahalai, the son of Levi, the son of Israel, namely Sherebiah, and with his sons and his kinsmen, 18 of them. And also Hashibiah and him, Josiah, and the sons of Merai, and with the kinsmen and their sons, 20, besides 220 of the temple servants whom David and his officials had set apart to attend the Levites. These were all mentioned by name. And then I proclaimed a fast. So they're going to move all this treasure and all these people, a very long, arduous, dangerous journey where there's bandits and robbers and problems, and they didn't bring any soldiers with them. Instead, they proclaimed a fast at the river Ava that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek Him for a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all of our goods. Here's why. Here's why. For I was ashamed to ask the king, the pagan king, for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on the way. Since we told the king the hand of our God is good, for all who seek Him. And the power of His wrath is against all who forsake Him. And so, instead of sending an army, they fasted. And they employed our God for this, for safety on the journey. And He listened to our entreaty. And then I set apart twelve of the leading priests, Sherebah and Hashbah and the ten of their kinsmen with them. And here it is. I weighed out to them the silver and the gold vessels that we're going to bring back. The offering for the house of our God that the king and his counselors and his lords and all Israel there present had offered. Now here's the the breakdown. I weighed out in their hands 750 talents of silver and silver vessels worth 200 talents, and 100 talents of gold, and 20 bowls worth 1,000 derricks, and two vessels of fine bronze as precious as gold. And I said to them, you are holy to the Lord. And the vessels are holy. So the people carrying the vessels for God's purposes were sanctified, and the vessels were sanctified, and the silver and the gold are a freewill offering to the Lord, the God of our fathers. You are to guard them and keep them until you weigh them before the chief priests and the Levites and the heads of the fathers in Israel. So they're leaving Babylon with all this expensive stuff, and he says, this is your charge before the Lord, to take care of this, to not let a single piece of gold be lost or a sliver of silver be stolen within the chambers of the house of the Lord. So the priests and the Levites took over the weight of the silver and the gold and the vessels and brought them to Jerusalem to the house of our God. It made it all the way. Verse 31, Then we departed from the river Ava on the twelfth day of the first month to go to Jerusalem, and the hand of our God was on us, and He delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from ambushes along the way. And we came to Jerusalem, and there we remained three days. And on the fourth day, within the house of God, the silver, the gold, the vessels were weighed into the hands of the priest, the son of Uriah, and with him Eleazar, the son of Phinehas, and with them were the Levites. And Jazabat and the son of Jehua, and uh, Nodia, and the son of Abinui, and the whole was counted and weighed, and the weight of everything was recorded. We knew how much left, and we knew how much arrived. And at that time, those who had come from captivity, the returned exiles, well, they offered burnt offerings to the God of Israel, 12 bulls for all of Israel, 96 rams, 77 lambs, and a sin offering of 12 male goats. And all this was a burnt offering to the Lord. And they also delivered the king's commission to the king's satraps, and the governors of the province beyond the river, and they aided the people in the house of God. Now, 
What is happening in these two chapters? Because sometimes it's hard to step into the biblical world. Okay. Well, well, Scripture is introducing us to Ezra's Ezra's absolutely pivotal role in, in God's unfolding plan to replant His people back in the Holy Land. Now, there are three major returns of God's people if you study Scripture. In 538, God raises up a man named Zerubbabel, who we met in the beginning of the book of Ezra, and he brings back most of the exiles, 50,000. All right, 50,000 come back to rebuild the temple. That's like filling one of our Major League Baseball parks, 50,000 people. Only problem is, if you filled every Major League Baseball park, that's how many Jews there were. There were a couple million, and yet only 50,000 came back. And they came back, and through much difficulty and much satanic opposition, they were able ultimately to rebuild the temple. Now we move 80 years later. 80 years from that first large return of 50,000, and God raises up another man, not Zerubbabel this time, but a man named Ezra. And this time, only about 5,000. Not 50,000. Only 5,000. King says, anybody can go. And 10% of the tiny puny number that went the first time came this time. About 5,000 men, women, and children are sent back to reinvigorate the returnees by putting them into the Word of God with a renewed passion and a renewed power from an especially proficient preacher. Ezra was skilled in the law and he was a preacher's preacher. And, and then there's going to be a final return that happens later in Nehemiah's day around 445. God will raise up another great leader. His name is Nehemiah. And they will bring an even smaller batch of Israelites back and that will enable the city's walls to be rebuilt. And those three phases of God's purposes will happen. The first builds the temple. The last builds the walls and the one in the middle builds the people around the word of God so that's where we are today we're Ezra who's coming back as the second return of 5,000 to reinvigorate the people of God now you cannot read the book of Ezra and the book of Nehemiah without realizing that God raises up leaders for such a time as this doesn't he when God is ready to move, He raises up people to get the people of God back on the move. Now the Bible teaches in Isaiah chapter 3 that when God wants to judge a people, He sends them inferior leaders. Isaiah chapter 3, if God wants to judge a people, He'll send them inferior leaders. But when God wants to bless a people, He sovereignly raises up a Joshua, an Ezra, a Nehemiah to come among them. You need to pray that God would raise up godly leaders that this nation would turn back to God. Amen? You need to pray that God would raise up godly pastors just as we're praying for Ukraine. We need this in the United States. We're the third largest mission field by the number of people that need Jesus. And we desperately need for God to raise up because we can't manufacture them. We need to pray that God would raise up pastors and teachers and evangelists and missionaries that this country would get the Gospel again. Now we're here in chapter 7 where God is raising up a special servant and his name is Ezra. Uh, uh, about about uh, 80 years have passed since the, since the events of, of Ezra 6. Uh, 56 years technically because they built the temple and there was a 16 year delay. And so there's this, this passing. What happens in 56 years? Hot people grow cold. Excited people become less excited in the things of the Lord. And that's what happens in our story. The people's white-hot jubilation had turned to stagnation in the interspersing generation. And next week, we will learn that Ezra is about to discover rampant compromise amongst the returnees. And so God knows His saints quickly grow cold. So He sends a powerful preacher, particularly proficient in Scripture, to stir His people's hearts back to the Lord. To enthusiastic obedience and single-minded kingdom service. And we all need that, amen? 
We all need that. And, and this whole story is an amazing story. It's so tragic that so few preach it. It ought to be a story we all know. Uh, God moves the heart of yet another pagan king. Uh, this time, a man named Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes will not only part with his senior servant in sending the proficient and efficient Ezra, but he will send what amounts to millions of dollars of treasure to aid in the worship of the one true God. Wow! Uh, the pagan king will forbid the imposition of taxation, uh, taxation on the Lord's servants. The pagan king will authorize Ezra to command the Jewish remnant to follow the Word of God. And he gives enforcement of the law of God up to capital punishment back to the priests. Huh. Ezra is ordered to go and appoint priests. The king orders Ezra to appoint priests and judges to do what? To adjudicate the word of God amongst the people. This is the pagan state actively fostering the work of God. Not only God can do that, hey? It's an amazing story. What a day. I want you to listen again to the pagan Persian potentate's prodigious proclamation. It starts in verse 11 of chapter 7. Turn back to chapter 7 and verse 11 and just listen to what God does on this pagan potentate's heart. This is a copy of the letter that King Artaxerxes gave to Ezra the priest, the scribe, a man learned in the matters of the commandments of the Lord and his statues for Israel. Here it is. Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra the priest, and scribe of the law of God of heaven, peace. And now, I make a decree that anyone of the people of Israel or their priests or Levites in my kingdom who freely offers to go to Jerusalem may go with you. He's releasing anyone and everyone. But sadly, who goes? Almost no one. Verse 14, For you are sent by the king, not against the king, not in opposition to the king, not in indifference to the king. You're commissioned by an earthly king to do the heavenly king's business. And his seven counselors to make inquiry about Judah and Jerusalem according to the law of your God which is in your hand. And then, I don't want you just to go. I'm not just sending human resources. I'm going to send financial resources. Verse 15, And carry the silver and gold that the king and his counselors have freely offered to this God. The God of Israel. Whose dwelling is in Jerusalem. And all the silver and gold that you shall find in the whole province of Babylonia with the free will offerings of the people and the priests vowed willingly in the house of their God that is in Jerusalem. So go amongst the people and say, if you won't go, will you send back treasure to advance the work of God? Verse 17, And with this money then, you shall with all diligence you buy the rams and the bulls and the lambs and the grain offerings and the drink offerings and you shall offer them on the altar of the house of your God that is in Jerusalem. Whatever seems good to you and your brothers, do this with the rest of the silver and the gold that you may do according to the will of your God. Again, this is a pagan saying this. The vessels that have been given you for the service of the house of your God, you shall deliver before the God of Jerusalem. And whatever else is required of the house of your God, which it falls to you to provide. The pagan understood that it was the Lord's people's job to do the work of God. You may provide it out of the king's treasury. Wow, he's willing to fund it. Verse 21, And I, Artaxerxes the king, make a decree to all the treasures in the, in the province beyond the river, whatever Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of God of heaven, requires of you, let it be done with all diligence. Now he's no fool, so he doesn't write a blank check. He says, up to. Okay? Because, <laughs> you know, you could kind of get hosed on this deal, right? And so he says, up to 100 talents of silver, 100 cores of wheat, 100 baths of wine, 100 baths of oil, and salt without measure. However much they need. Whatever is decreed by the God of heaven, not, not by the priest, but by the God of heaven, let it be done in the full for the house of the God of heaven. Let his wrath be against the realm, let his, lest his wrath be against the realm of the king. That he wants to turn the wrath away from himself. 
We also notify you that it shall not be lawful to impose tribute, custom, or toll on any of the priests. So there's no taxation on those who minister in God's kingdom. Specifically, the priests, the Levites, the singers, the doorkeepers, the temple servants, and also the servants of the house of this God. Verse 25, And you, Ezra, according to the wisdom of your God that's in your hand, I want you to go, the king is saying, and appoint what? Magistrates and judges who do what? Who judge all the people, all the Jewish people in the province beyond the river, and as such as know the laws of your God. Now, if somebody doesn't know the law, and those who do not know the law, you shall teach. Whomever will not obey the law of the God, the law of the king, let judgment be strictly executed on him, whether for death or banishment or confiscation, up to the death penalty you can prescribe. Now, now what would make a king so inclined to give up so much talent and so much treasure? What would provoke a pagan potentate to advocate and legislate for the Bible to be sought, brought, and indeed taught in a land that he's never been to? What would motivate him to send a man especially skilled in Scripture back to Jerusalem? And here's the answer. It's point one in our outlines today. Point one in our outlines today is this. Friends, we need to understand. We need to understand this truth. The power of our personal testimony of integrity to catch the attention of a watching world for the glory of God. The power of our personal testimony of integrity to catch the attention of a watching world for the glory of God. King Artaxerxes was willing to send Ezra because the Bible says, the Bible is teaching us that Ezra had lived so circumspectly and so enthusiastically for the Lord his God that the king's heart was inclined to help him. That man is a good man, and I want to help that man. If Ezra hadn't been a good man, there would have been no turning of the king's heart. I want you to look at verse 6 again. The Bible says this Ezra went up from Babylonia and he was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses the Lord that the God of Israel had given him and the king granted him all he asked for. Why? For the hand of the Lord his God was on him. Now why was the hand of the Lord on him? Well, we learn that from Ezra 7.10 later because he devoted himself to study, to obey, and to teach the word of God. So, so the king saw something in Ezra that was so different from all of his other subjects. And what was it? He saw his single-minded devotion to study, to live, and to teach the Word of God. And it caught the king's attention. Now, Ezra was a scribe, the Bible says. Uh, that's a subset within the Levitical priesthood. And he was really, really, really good at his job. The Bible says he was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses. Not every scribe was as good at this, but he was. He was so good at this. The king's sending of Ezra, most commentators tell us, strongly implies that, that Ezra's role in the Persian kingdom was sort of like being the secretary of state to Jewish affairs within the, Jewish, within the Persian kingdom. That was, he would lean on Ezra as being the knowledgeable man of how to deal with the Jewish subjects under his reign. And, and, and friends, do you know, if you read the story, God had been putting his people under pagan power for 150 years. Because there's 80 years between chapter 6 and chapter 7, and then there's... 70 years of captivity. All in Babylon. All under the Babylonians and the Persians. I want you to remember, Nebuchadnezzar, the first guy who took the Israelites away, who did he press into service? A man named Daniel. A man named Daniel. And Daniel was a man of such sterling integrity that the Babylonian king gave him charge of many vital areas in his kingdom. And the only time Daniel ever defied the king was when Nebuchadnezzar was tricked by some other advisors that, he, that no one could pray to any other god. 
And Daniel, that's the only time he ever defied his king. And, and he didn't do it in secret. He didn't just pray to God. He threw open the window so God and everybody could see it. And he prayed to God. And well, he had to go to the lion's den for that because that was the punishment. And the king didn't want it. The king couldn't reverse his decree, but the king didn't like how this was working out. And he was thrown in the lion's den and God shut the mouths of the lion. And the king waited and the king waited expecting to see a corpse and a carcass and a torn apart servant. And instead the door opens and there's Daniel. And it really got wicked Nebuchadnezzar's attention. Wow, what's up with this God and what's up with this guy? Now the king also had other servants who were men of integrity, young men of integrity. There was Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego and, and they wouldn't bend, you know. And they said, we'll go in the fiery furnace even if our God doesn't let us out. He's capable of saving us, but He may not save us, but we will not bend. And they did not burn. And they looked in and the king saw not three men, but because the Lord Jesus was standing with those men. And he saved them. They came out of the fire. And the king saw that. And he was like, wow, there's something about their God. And then later, there's another king. There's a king named King Cyrus. And there was a man named Zerubbabel who was also a man of great integrity. And Zerubbabel so impressed the king that the king sent Zerubbabel along with 50,000 of his subjects back and anybody else who wanted to go could have gone. And now we have Ezra. We have Ezra's life of faithfulness. And this life of faithfulness is noticed and it is rewarded. Friends, a lost world is watching your life. A lost world is watching my life. The Bible says we ought, to lead, we ought to strive to lead such godly lives among the pagans that though they want to malign us, they cannot. The Bible says in a world of darkness to let your light so shine before men that they may see your good deeds and give praise to your Father in heaven. Not give good praise to the Evangelical Free Church or Calvary Church or to you as a do-gooder, but that they would make a connection between your life and your Lord. Is that the life we're living? Is that the testimony we're giving? Is that the impact that we're having? You see, navigating this fallen world causes us to ponder, when do I defy the king and when do I defer to the king? That there are times where I can't do what the king asked me to do. Even Daniel couldn't. And the answer to that is Scripture. Scripture tells us when we must defy the king and when we must defer to the king. Because the Word of God is a lamp unto our feet in a world of crooked darkness. And that brings us to point two today. Point two is this. Our need for Scripture to be our north star, our guiding point, our luminary, our compass, the thing that we set our life on when everything is topsy-turvy. Our need for Scripture to be our north star in guiding us to pursue the glory of God. Friends, Ezra was not just a scribe. He was a scribe who truly knew the Word of God. Verse 6 says, Ezra was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses, the God of Israel. This is the very same word used in the book of Proverbs. Hebrew, uh, Proverbs 22-29, the Bible says, Do you see a man skillful in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. So, so if you make the best piccolo in the world, you'll probably sell that piccolo to the best symphony in the world. Right? Here was a man who was skillful in the Word of God, and God gave him appointments with the king. Our brother here had appointments with the mayor of the town that used to hunt Christians. You see a man skillful in the Word of God. Billy Graham used to pray with presidents at their request. There was integrity behind Billy Graham. He wasn't a perfect man. He was a man. But God can use a man who sold himself out to Jesus with integrity in a world where there's very little of that. Indeed, Ezra would stand before the king. And the king noticed Ezra's uh, prowess with the Word of God. I want you to look at verse 11. This is a copy of the letter that King Artaxerxes gave to the priest, the scribe. Ezra the priest, the scribe, a man learned. A man learned in matters of the commandments of the Lord. Friends, there are folks who know about the Word. 
There are folks who can quote the Word, and then there are folks who are learned in the Word. There are folks who can rightly divide the Word. Are you one of those folks? Do you want to be one of those folks? If you don't say right now, I'm one of those folks who's learned in the Word of God, who can rightly divide the Word of God, who's tactical and biblical with the use of the Word of God, then how do I become a person like that? And here's the answer. Here's the Bible's answer. I want you to underline Ezra 7.10. In fact, I want you to memorize Ezra 7.10. It is a verse that I memorized as a young man. It has been a North Star for me. The verse is this. The Bible says the good hand of God was on Ezra. And when I first heard that, it made me stop. When I read the book of Ezra for one of the first times, and, and, and I saw the good hand of God was on Ezra. Now I thought, well, I want the good hand of God on me. How about you? And I'm like, so how'd that work? And the very next verse says why. There's a causal connective. For, for Ezra had set his heart to study the Bible, to study the law of the Lord, to do it, to live the Bible, and then to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. Ezra 7.10. Do you study the Word daily? Do you walk in the Word intentionally? Do you disseminate the Word effectively? When I was called to ministry, God ended up sending me to Moody Bible Institute. And in Culberson Hall, which is the men's dorm, in the summer they move all the students out of the other dorms, they do renovations. We were in Culberson Hall. And they had this thing on the second floor called prayer closets. And what that meant was it was a room with a door with no ventilation. That in the summer was very hot and uncomfortable. And you know, nobody used them. They've taken them out of Culberson Hall. They've been ripped out. They've been turned into like a tea area or something. But I spent that summer, every day when I was off work, before I go to work, I worked public safety, I would go, and I would go in that little hot closet, and I would pray, and this is what I'd pray. I'd pray along Ezra. And I'd say, Lord, would you teach me your word? Remember, I went to Bible college. I hadn't read the whole Old Testament before. Hadn't. I grew up in a pagan home. And, and, and I was learning things that I'd never heard of, and, and exiles and returns and hard names that I still struggle to pronounce. And, and it was hard. And I prayed, Lord, show me your word. Help me to teach your word and make me a powerful voice for your word in my generation. I prayed that every day for hours a day. And I'm going to tell you, if there's any power in my preaching, some of that has come because of the result of praying. When I was in Bible college, God opened doors for me to preach. And I preach almost every single Sunday, sometimes twice on a Sunday. And I don't know anybody else that I went to school with that as an undergraduate had that opportunity. And I can't explain that apart from God answering prayer. He opened doors that I couldn't have made open. And he gifted in ways that I couldn't have had happen. I, Lord, show me your word. Help me to understand it. Help me to live it and help me to teach it powerfully in my generation. Maybe that's a prayer we should be teaching our children. Amen? In 1872, there was an English evangelist that nobody remembers. His name was Henry Varley. And he crossed paths with another powerful evangelist that people do know of, and his name was D.L. Moody. And Henry Varley looked at D.L. Moody and said, the world has yet to see what God will do with a man fully consecrated to himself. And D.L. Moody said, God, I want to be that man. God, I want to be that man. And D.L. Moody has left a lasting legacy that has impacted Christ for over 130 years. Hey, let's pray that we'd be that man or woman. Amen? We, the world needs more of people wholly consecrated to Jesus. Now, just as we need the North Star of Scripture to guide us, as we look to God's Word, I'm going to tell you, as you look to God's Word, it's going to challenge us, isn't it? It's sharper than a two-edged sword. Which brings us to point three today. Our need for faith to be our default setting as we seek to bring glory to God. We're going to need for faith to be our default setting. It's going to continually put us in situations where we're uncomfortable and under-resourced. Do you understand that what Ezra was doing was utterly ludicrous? 
Do you understand? Uh, it was an utterly crazy act of faith. Uh, look at verse 21 of chapter 8. Turn to chapter 8 and go to verse 21. And you're going to see this is just a crazy plan of God. Ezra chapter 8, verse 21, And then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from Him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and our goods. Why? For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way, since we had told the king the hand of our God is for our good on all who seek Him, and the power of His wrath is against all who forsake Him. And so we fasted and implored our God for this, and He listened to our entreaty. Why was the journey so scary? Uh, Scripture tells us this takes about four months. When it tells us he left this day and he arrives this day, it's like four months it took to get from there to there. And they took millions of dollars of wealth, unguarded, over a four-month journey. And lots of people knew they left with the money, right? Look at verse 24. Then I was set apart, twelve of the leading priests, uh, Sherebiah and Hashbiah and ten of their kinsmen with them. And I weighed out the silver and the gold and the vessels and the offering of the house of our God that the king and the counselors and his lords and all Israel presented and offered. And I weighed out under their hands 650 talents of silver. And silver vessels worth 200 talents and 100 talents of gold and 20 bowls of gold worth 1,000 derricks and two vessels of fine bright bronze as precious as gold. And I said to them, you are holy to the Lord. That's the men holding the vessel. And the vessels are holy. And the silver and gold are a freewill offering to the Lord, the God of our fathers. Guard them and keep them until you weigh them before the chief priests and Levites and the heads of the fathers' households all the way back in Jerusalem. Within the chamber of the house of God. That is, you're going to hold on to this for four months every day, night and day, with your life on the line before the Lord until you get to the house of the Lord and then you relinquish this to the people of God for the business of God. So the priests and the Levites took over the weight of the silver and the gold and the vessels to bring them back to Jerusalem to the house of the God. And then we departed from the river Ahava on the twelfth day of the first month to go to Jerusalem. And the hand of our God was on us and He delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from the ambushes on the way. So there were going to be ambushes. And God sent them into the bushes. And there were enemies. And they weren't allowed to attack. 1,500 simple citizens, not seasoned soldiers, transported with the math about 24 metric tons of silver and almost 4 tons of gold when you weigh it all out. There was no royal escort sent on a, on a, dis, uh, on a dangerous, difficult route. Friends, it was an ambush waiting to happen. And yet Ezra did not want the king to think less of God. And so God's people chose to fast and pray instead of request soldiers to protect them. Now, I need to tell you something right here. This is a crazy act of faith, isn't it? Do we always have to do it the stupidest way to give God glory? No, because Nehemiah, when he goes back, he brings soldiers, baby. So there are times that it's okay to say, you know what, I'm going to bring a cop. <laughs> and there are times to say, I'm not. And the time to do that is when the Spirit tells you which one. Alright? So, Nehemiah is willing to take soldiers and God doesn't say a single word against it. Ezra is constrained of the Spirit not to take soldiers and God protects him through it. Sometimes God deliberately puts us between a Red Sea and a Pharaoh seeing red so that we realize that God delivered us and not us. I want you to write Hebrews 11.6 in the margin of your Bibles next to this passage. Hebrews 11.6. And here's the verse. The Bible says, Without faith it is impossible 
to please God because anyone who comes to Him must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who earnestly seek Him. How hard is it to please God without faith? It's impossible. Let's try that again. It's a very low participation church. It's very demoralizing. How hard is it to please God without faith? It's impossible. You cannot do it. You cannot please God without faith. If you're going to please God, we have to be a people of faith. We are saved through faith in Jesus and we bring glory to God by having faith in Jesus in everything, not just in salvation, in our marriages, in our homes, in our businesses, in our integrity. There's going to see other people getting ahead of you because you're doing it God's way instead of the world's way, and you've got to have faith that God's glory is more important than your promotion. Now, we don't have faith in faith. Our faith must be in Jesus and where Jesus leads us. And let me tell you, that will always be stretching because that's how faith works. That will always be stretching. Where has Jesus led you that has stretched you? And if the answer is nowhere, there's probably a problem in your listening. Because Scripture shows us over and over from every page from Genesis to Revelation that God intentionally and repeatedly stretches us that our faith muscles might grow to the glory of God. If faith is like a muscle, uh, the more we use it, the stronger it becomes. The more we trust God where He leads us the more trusting we become of God next time He leads us. Amen? And the more weight we can lift for faith and we can turn to our brother who's not trusted because he's new in the Lord and say we've been this way before and it looks scary, but we have a God who's bigger than Goliath. But somebody's got to have the faith to trust God to get that started. Just as we must remember our need for faith to be our default setting, not when we have no other choice we have faith, it ought to be the default setting because we're the people of faith. Just as we need to remember our need for faith is our default setting, so too it is true, number four, we also need God's hand of blessing if we're going to achieve anything of lasting worth. Our faith isn't going to fix anything. Our God has to fix everything. Alright? I want you to see that our need for, for God's hand of blessing if we are to achieve anything of lasting worth the glory of God. It was not the king's favor. It was not the people's faith. It was not Ezra's fantastic ministry that won the day in our story. The Bible says repeatedly, it was the good hand of God blessing His people, moving their king, raising up a servant. This key phrase you can't avoid. I want you to look in the story. You might want to star it or asterisk or underline it because it's an important phrase. I want you to look at verse 6. For the hand of the Lord is God was on him. Now turn to Ezra 7.28. Verse 28, chapter 7, I took courage for the hand of the Lord my God was on me. And so I gathered the leading men from Israel to go up with me. Now skip to chapter 8 and verse 18. 8.18. And the good hand of our God was on us. And they brought us men of discretion. And Ezra 8.31. And the hand of God was on us. And He delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from the ambushes by the way. Friends, it is all too easy for God's people to look to the means instead of the God of those means in our deliverance. Too often we look for some preacher to urge us, some president to lead us, some career to fulfill us, some romantic liaison to enthrall us. And you know what? All those things can be good, but they are never the ultimate good. The ultimate good. All of those things can be exactly how God chooses to help us. But it is ultimately God who helps us by sending us those things. Did you know prayer doesn't ultimately help us? It's the God who answers prayer. If prayer helped us, we'd be saved by works. And yet, God tells us 
Some things will only go out by prayer. He's sovereign over the means. We still have to pray. At the end of the day, our praying didn't make it happen. Our God made it happen. But sometimes He chooses to only work if we pray. It's just like evangelism. God is the author of salvation, and yet we are called to share. No sharing, no saving, and yet we don't save anybody. Hmm. Jesus is very clear on this. You might want to write John 15.5. John 15.5 in your Bibles, because Jesus promises, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he bears much fruit, and apart from me you can do... Now, we can build big churches, we can fill the churches with goats <laughs> instead of sheep, but only Jesus can make dead people into live people. That is, only He can make sheep. Amen? We can do all kinds of things that look almost like kingdom building activity, but they tend to be empire building activity. And if we put a cross on it, we won't know any different until we get to heaven. And then it'll all be revealed as hay, wood, and stubble and so much activity. God is not asking you to do stupid things for Him with all your might. He's asking you to trust Him wherever He leads you. And sometimes He tells you to trust to just rest and pray. And other times He tells you to go and do and share. And I know people that don't want to rest and trust. They only want to go and do. And I know people that won't go and do when God tells them to stop resting and start working. The issue is He's the King. And He knows exactly when and exactly who and exactly how. And are you listening to your King? The Bible says, do not grieve the Spirit, but keep in step with the Holy Spirit. I need to tell you that a perfect spouse will not make you happy. A terrific president will not solve all of your problems. Only God can ultimately fulfill us. Are you looking to the Savior as your Savior, or are you looking to something lesser? If I just had this, there would be bliss. Are we looking to well-oiled programs and well-orchestrated worship and, and polished preaching to build up Calvary? If you are, I want you to look again. God can and does use each of those things, but real growth, kingdom-impacting growth, comes from the King. Kingdom growth comes from the King. Spiritual growth comes from the Holy Spirit. Things of eternal significance come from the Eternal One. I want you to look to Jesus, to lean on Jesus, and be very careful to give Jesus all the glory, all the honor, and all the praise if He decides to show up and do something amongst us. Now there's a balancing truth to this reality. It is true that the God who is sovereign over the ends is also sovereign over the means. And He has chosen our scrupulous diligence in order to achieve many of the things He wants to do in this world. Did you know the rocks could cry out the Gospel? But instead, God has entrusted evangelism to you and I. The Bible, uh, we could have angels proclaim the glory of God in ways better than we can. More eloquently, more accurately, more powerfully than any preacher. But God has ordained that through the foolishness of preaching, the Gospel would go forth. That's how He's chosen to do it. Which brings us to our next point, point five. Our need for scrupulous diligence. Not slapdash when I get around to it, if I don't have a game today, but scrupulous diligence in matters entrusted to us so that we bring glory to God. That's what's required of the people of God. Not to save us, but because we love our King. If you love me, you will obey. Not so that I'll love you, you obey me. That's not how it works. Our need for scrupulous diligence in matters entrusted to us so that we actually bring glory to God. I want you to look at the very end of our text today. Go to chapter 8 and verse 24. Chapter 8 and verse 24. Ezra 8, 24. Then I set apart twelve of the leading priests, Sherebiah, Hashbiah, and ten of the kinsmen with them. And so Ezra took a dozen of the very best that he had, the leading priests, and ten of their kin. 
And then he did this, verse 25. I weighed out to them the silver and the gold and the vessels, the offerings for the house of our God that the king and his counselors and his lords and all of Israel there present had offered. And I weighed out to them into their hands 650 talents of silver. The silver vessels were 200 talents, 100 talents of gold, 20 bowls of gold worth 1,000 durics, and two vessels of fine bright bronze as precious as gold. Ezra counted the treasures. He knew exactly how much he had been given. And he entrusted the treasure's care to men who were trustworthy to do something God wanted with it. And here it is in verse 28. And I said to them, you are holy unto the Lord. And the vessels are holy. And the silver and the gold are a freewill offering to the Lord, the God of your fathers. Guard them and keep them until you weigh them before the chief priests and the Levites and the head of the fathers' houses in Jerusalem. It's going to take them four months to get there. And they're not like, oh, we've made it to Jerusalem. Drop it all off in a pile. I hope it works out. No. Go all the way to the house of God. Give it to a specific guy. Have that specific guy weigh it out before the Lord that not a single penny was taken. Until you weigh them before the chief priests and the Levites and the heads of the fathers' houses at Jerusalem within the chambers of the house of the Lord. And so the priests and the Levites took over the weight of the silver and the gold and the vessels to bring them to Jerusalem to the house of our God. There was responsibility and there was accountability. Hear that, North American Christians. There was responsibility and there was accountability. Everybody wasn't just off doing their own thing for Jesus. And there was transparency. Everybody could see whether they did it or didn't do it. And all that was done was done decently and in order in God's house. Look at verse 31. How'd they do? Then we departed from the river Asa on the twelfth day of the first month to go to Jerusalem. And the hand of our God was on us. And He delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from the ambushes, by the way. And we came to Jerusalem and there we remained for three days... And on the fourth day, within the house of God, just like they were told, the silver and the gold and the vessels were weighed out in the hands of the priest, the son of Uriah. And with him was Eleazar, the son of Phinehas. And with them the Levites. And Josabad, the son of Jehua. And Nodia, the son of Benui. And the whole was counted and weighed. And the weight of everything was recorded. Down to the penny. Millions of dollars of precious cargo. Four months of arduous journey. Uh, every ounce of that cargo was reweighed and accounted for. No skim was taken by them. Sometimes we're a little too cavalier in our service, aren't we? Uh, why do we have two-person integrity when we count your offering? Why do we have infrared motion sensor cameras everywhere there's a child in the kids' area? So you can't move your finger without that being recorded with our children. Why is it that we have to have your receipts for reimbursement in by December 31st or we can't reimburse you on January 1st? Well, that's just being picky, Sean. Why is it we can't post-date you a check? You know why? Because God deserves better. Not because we're Pharisees, not because we're sticklers, but, but because we ought to have integrity. You see this passage, the incredible integrity down to the penny of the people of God? We've become quite cavalier in how we serve. That doesn't mean we're legalists but it just means that maybe we should be a little more diligent with the things of God. Number six, our final point, and it's this. Our need to step up. Our need to step up and volunteer for hard duty for the glory of God. Our need to step up and volunteer for hard duty. Look at chapter 8 and verse 15 again. You're going to see something sad in this story that's great. Chapter 8 and verse 15, a sad reality. I gathered them to the river that runs to Ahava, and there we camped for three days. So, so all the people that were willing to go back, and it wasn't the millions, and it wasn't even the 50,000. It was 5,000. And out of the 5,000, I gathered to the river Ava, and there I camped for three days, and we did an inventory. Who's going with us? And I reviewed the people. You know, the Smiths are here, and the, 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 the Stornworths are here, and, and the Joneses are here, and there's no priests. How many priests came? None. 
How many sons of Levi's? None. Now, what were they sent to do? They were sent to reinvigorate the work of God and the Word of God. You kind of think you need a couple priests for that, huh? The Levites were needed to teach the people, and they were going to do the hard duty at the temple. All the rams and the lambs and the water and the cleansing and all that stuff that takes so much effort in all your days. Not a single Levite was among the 1,500 willing to return. The Levites, after 70 years of captivity and 80 years of inactivity, when Zerubbabel's group left and this time had passed, the Levites were the most reluctant to leave the hanging gardens of Babylon where life is much easier than temple service. Some of these Levites probably were weary. Maybe their trust wasn't in, afraid of God. They were afraid of God's people. They knew these people. They knew how they compromised. And they thought, well, I can't go back to Israel and live by faith that the Israelites will tithe because if they don't, my family won't eat. I don't know what made them not want to go. But not one of them, not one of them was willing to go. I'm going to tell you something. Some of us are going to be called to hard duty for Jesus. We are. That's how it works. Some of us will be called. For some saints, the journey for Jesus is more arduous. Each of us who calls Christ Lord must learn something, and that is that we can never say, no, Lord. Those two words don't go together, do they? No, Lord. They don't go together logically. He can't be Lord if you can say no. And they don't go together theologically because no one who ever says it in Scripture is ever commended for it. Get behind me, Satan, is what was said, wasn't it? No, Lord, I don't want you to go to the cross, Peter said. After just saying, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, and this has been revealed to you by the Holy Spirit, right? My Father in heaven. And then he says, but you can't go to the cross. And Jesus has to say, get away from me. You can't put no and Lord together. But so many Christians in 2018, that's the normal response to anything uncomfortable, anything that costs us something. Jesus says, take up my cross and follow me. And we go, amen. And then we, God tells us to do something we don't like. And we go, well, not that. I couldn't share Christ with Him because I would be uncomfortable. Jesus was pretty comfortable on that cross for six hours, wasn't He? Clearly, comfort is the main thing God is interested in. Hmm. If the Lord is tapping you on your shoulder to do something for Him, to volunteer, to train, to serve, to some level of increased faith and faithfulness, don't reject the commission of your king. There's an old African missionary. His name's David Livingston. And he once noted this. Here it is. Quote, if a commission by an earthly king is considered an honor, how can commission by a heavenly king be considered a sacrifice? I'll say that again. If commissioned by an earthly king can be considered an honor, how can commissioned by a heavenly king be considered a sacrifice? Praise God that the Levites ultimately mustered. Look at verse 16. Then I sent for Eleazar and Ariel and Shemaiah and, and Elnathan and Jerob. And Elnathan again, must have been two of those, and a guy named Nathan and Zechariah and Meshulam, leading men. And for Jorob and Elnathan, who were men of insight, and I sent them to Edo and the leading men at Casipha, uh, telling them what to say to Edo and his brothers. So, Ezra knew how to deal with people, didn't he? Nobody wanted to go. And he said, well, don't go to everybody. Go to somebody. Go to this guy. He's the most likely to go. And here's what you need to say. You can't just do stuff for God. You have to have a spirit leading. You have to have wise words. You have to know what to say. He knew who to ask out of all the Levites. If nobody wanted to go, here's the guy that was most likely to go. And here's how you need to say it. Hmm. 
What to say to Edo and his brothers and the temple servants of the house of, of Kasipa, namely to send us ministers for the house of our God. And by the good hand of God on us, they brought us a man of discretion, the son of Malhi, the son of Levi, the son of Israel, namely Sherebiah and the sons of his kismen. And also Hashbiah and with him Jeshiah and the sons of Merai and their kismen and their sons, 20 of them. Besides 220 of the temple servants whom David and his officials had set apart to attend the Levites. They were all mentioned by name. So 38 Levites go. That's 2.5% of the total of the 1,500. 38 out of 1,500 is 2.5%. When, when Zerubbabel went with 50,000 people, do you know how many Levites and temple servants went? 733. Do you know how much percentage that is? That's 1.5%. It's actually just a little under. Friends, Jesus knew what he was talking about when he said, the fields are white unto harvest, but the workers are what? Now, way back then, you have in the second return, 2.5%. In the first return, 1.5%. And we look around today, you need to pray that God would raise up pastors and missionaries from this church, that we would be a church that would send people around the world for the gospel, and we would be used to equip, empower, disciple, and plant churches to the glory of God around the world. Now the kingdom needs pastors and missionaries, but right here at Calvary, we need singers and, and, and worship leaders and nursery workers and teachers and deacons and deaconesses and people that just go and visit other people that have come out of the hospital, people that send cards and make calls. We need people who will stand up to be elders, which means you do all the stinky stuff that nobody likes and everybody hates you for it. We need all those people. We need prayer warriors. We need givers. And most of all, we need faithful evangelists. That is, we need you to go out and be missionaries in every business, in every subdivision, in every gas station that you go to when Jesus prompts you. Not because we're legalists, but as God prompts us, and we need to see ourselves first and foremost as the king's ambassadors and not our own comforters. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, there's so much truth in your word, and in two chapters of scripture, there are so many things here. And I just pray that you'd press one truth home in every heart today, that there would be something from this service that, that speaks to us, that takes us back to Ezra. Maybe it's integrity. Maybe it's living a sterling way in a crooked day. Uh, Lord, would you use our integrity for Jesus to have people to take notice of Jesus and not us? that we would point people to the King of Kings because that's why we're living in a straight and narrow way because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be diligent, that, that in areas where people go, well, you don't have to do it that way, and, and why do you do it that way? And that's, that's, just, that's just too much time and too cumbersome, but sometimes the right way is the right way, and we need to do it the right way. It's not the fastest way. It's not the most efficient way. We think about the fruit of the Spirit, Lord. Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. You know what's not on that list? Efficiency. I personally hate that because I really like efficiency, but I can't find it and I can't squeeze it into the list. In fact, so many things on that list are inefficient. Love is inefficient. Peace, patience, goodness, kindness, those all take time and are messy. And so, Lord, help us to, to, to be the kind of people that you want us to be, to live with integrity, to do things scrupulously, not as Pharisees who shine their phylacteries and take pride in the fact that we do things in a certain way, but just people that do it because we're doing it as unto the Lord. We're doing this under the Lord. We're, we're, we're installing that, 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 that security light as under the Lord. So we want it to last for as long as possible and to show the, uh, the, the illumination of that part of the church for as long as possible, that we just do things right. Uh, Lord, I pray that you'd help us to, uh, to be willing to be stretched in our faith, that, that, that we grow faith muscles, that we wouldn't just be in favor of faith, but we'd be a people of faith. And I pray that we wouldn't have uh, a stupid, reckless faith, a blind faith, but we'd have a living faith, a, a faith that's based on the, on the faithful one. 
I pray that we would let the Scriptures be our North Star. That we would become a people who, who pray to You. That we would, we would study the Word. That we would live the Word. And we would share the Word. And that You might bring people to the Word, which isn't ultimately the Bible, but is Jesus. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. And we pray this would be a church that brings people to Jesus. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.